at Jared, we know devotion isn't a once a year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted. Their episode of Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, Dino Babers. Uh, I guess we're in. We're we're full on in the uh, honeymoon period, which is good. It's a good feeling. Yeah, Baber Palooza over here. We uh, we've pretty much been writing about him nonstop. Uh, Dan, I guess you know we talked about it on the site. We talked about it internally on Slack. Um, how do you feel just like, you know, a few days in, uh, quite good. Um, obviously there's, you know, we, we only know so much. We know what we've seen from Bowling Green, which is all very, very positive. Um, there are some questions, not necessarily like bad questions, just unknown questions in terms of what his recruiting will end up looking like and, and what kind of staff, uh, this will largely be, it seems like it's going to be mostly Bowling Green people, and a lot of people who have been with him through his two head coaching stops. Um, but overall, I, I think it's hard not to be excited. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I was pretty much on board from, from beforehand. I know a lot of us were. You know, you and I were kind of joking about, um, you know, Maryland hiring Dino Babers um, way back uh, when Edsel got fired. And I think both of us said, you know, we joke here, but at the same time, we'd love to have Babers at SU if it came to that. Um, and it's funny how things work out. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't be more excited. I think, um, you know, hopefully anyone who didn't read the uh, the play-calling breakdown from the MAC championship game, um, go do so. It was a lot of fun to watch, um, and I hope a lot of fun to read, too, uh, just to see how well they use their offense, their personnel. I mean, there's a lot of comparison points uh, that you can make uh, without much effort at all. Um, between Syracuse's current personnel and the personnel that uh, that Bowling Green had in place. Obviously, when you have a fifth-year senior quarterback, um, that does provide some advantages. But you know what? That fifth-year senior quarterback didn't have an amazing game um, on Friday. And with little help from a turnover-driven defense, um, as well as an offense just seemed like they were never really out of it. I mean, they were in a couple third-and-long situations that they either converted or they set themselves up for an easy fourth-down conversion. Um, in general, they don't really do anything overly complicated. They just seem like uh, they understand the capabilities of, of, of their team. They understand what their system does well, um, and they're going to beat people with speed. And um, next year might be interesting in a worrisome way, if only because um, you know this is yet another new offense for a young team. Um, but at the same time, like if they can, if they can manage the, the first half of the season still like adjusting to the speed and everything if they're still you know firing and, and conditioned well in the second half um i, I think we could be on to something special yeah I, I think a lot of people have um and it's probably a good thing have kind of assumed that next year will be a work in progress and i think it definitely will uh i just think that we're coming from such a you know uh Obviously, we were close to winning some some games this year, but it's not exactly a very high floor. So I, I don't see any reason why this team can't be better next year, uh, considering all these young players are now a, a year older. 
obviously the system is going to take a while, but we're, you know, we were learning Lester's system this year and, and it was very much not a, a finished piece of art um, at any point this year. So um, yeah, I'm sure there'll be performances next year that are pretty ugly and there'll be times where our players don't really know, like look like they have a grasp of the Babers uh, system. But um, I mean, last year with Bowling Green, which was his first year there, uh, they were pretty decent. Um, at least by match standards this year, they were tremendous 10 and three, probably like an underrated team. Um, they ranked 13th in S and P they ranked like 18th in F plus. Uh, this is a team that the advanced statistics really, really like on a national, not just like a, a group of five level. Um, and he really, just the most impressive thing from watching, uh, a little bit of Bowling Green here and there. And then looking at the stats is he seems to really get a lot out of his talent. Um, and I think Syracuse has more talent than Bowling Green did. Uh, so it's an exciting time. Um, obviously, we don't know exactly what the recruiting class will look like, and we don't know if there will be transfers. We haven't heard too much buzz on that front outside of, like, one or two guys. And even there, it's all been very much, um, like, second- or third-hand information. But um, it, it seems like the, most of the team is buying in, and it seems like the fan base is kind of getting united around this guy, which is good. Agreed. Uh, from a recruiting standpoint, what do you think um, the team seems to be doing well so far? Um, I guess, do you think at this point there's any place for someone as a holdover from the previous staff? Um, and, and then, you know, without digging in too far, um, obviously a ton of offers went out today. Um, who are some of the bigger names or at least, you know, what are some of the better possibilities? Like, give me a best case, worst case um, out of how this, uh, this two-month recruiting period that that Babers and staff are going to have uh turns out obviously keeping in mind that there's a quiet period for a full month in there um for the staff it's uh it seems like we're taking mostly Bowling Green guys which I know some people were a little annoyed by because we don't the problem with being Syracuse is like we don't know what the staff budget is like if we just knew that it was low we could kind of come to grips with that or if we knew it was high we could you know try to figure out why certain things were happening, but we really don't have an idea. So um, people will speculate different things. Overall, we're coming from a a staff that, you know, while they were at Syracuse for one or two or three years, were mostly guys from around the same level that the Bowling Green staff is coming over from or lower because we took so many guys from like D3, which, you know, some worked, some didn't. It's not necessarily to say that you can't do that and be successful. It's just, um, by porting over most of the Bowling Green staff, it doesn't mean like it, it, it's not like we're going down in terms of where the experience level was from Schaefer staff. It's about the same. Um, the couple spots, I, I think, obviously this you know Babers famously hadn't like been to New York except for the game at Buffalo this year. Um, he, I, I think, Bobby Atosta is the guy who has been recruiting this region, New Jersey, New York, pretty well. Um, and he seems kind of adaptable in terms of where he can coach on positions. And he's, and you know, this year he was with the, the receivers. Um, obviously we have receivers covered with Babers with the guys that we seem to be having coming over, but there've been talks of maybe he could do, do running bats. He could do tight ends. So he's a guy who seems to still be in town um, and could be a possibility. And then there's also, uh, I think Clark lay may, maybe um, because I don't believe we've, had any hints of a linebackers coach yet. Although it's really tough because um, they really wanted to hit the ground running. So we don't actually know who is officially on staff, except for the few people who have changed their Twitter profiles um, or that we've been spotted with recruits. Uh, 
but overall, it seems like the majority is coming over from there, and, and maybe one or two guys hold over, but it doesn't even look like that's too likely right now. Yeah, and you know what? Um, I, I think that you know you hit on kind of the hiring tendencies uh, between Schaefer and Babers, and I think, um, and it's something I brought up in the comments, like you look at Babers is hiring in the way that most head coaches hire, and Syracuse fans may not be used to that, if only because we haven't really had you know, a, a head coach take our job. It's always been um, a coordinator, whether from college or the pros or, or you know, in uh, McPherson's uh, case, it was, you know, low, lower level, Maine, I believe. Um, so in general, like, this isn't a situation we're typically um, in. And, you know, Bayers is doing what a lot of coaches do. You take most of your staff with you. Um, or, I mean, we thought maybe some, some extended coaching tree, but it seems like he's going to take most of his staff with him. And these are guys that have experience in Florida and New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Ohio and the types of states that we typically recruit. Um, I, I think where, where Schaefer may have gone wrong, and, and it's, some, again, something I brought up um, in the greater conversation on the site, was that you know Schaefer, Schaefer brought in a staff the same way Babers is, except Schaefer didn't have a pre-existing staff. Um, I think he he grabbed a lot of guys who you know it, it was it was his his friends that that they all kind of agreed they'd be on staff together. But that that sounds awesome, and, and the camaraderie behind that's great. And the fact that all of them were able to keep those relationships intact um, across multiple staffs w- w- was great. But um, you know you don't have that luxury as a as a coordinator turned head coach, especially when you're a continuity hire um, to hire um, a bunch of you know bunch of pals especially ones that don't really have the experience needed i know there's some inexperience coming in um actually a decent amount of inexperience coming in from uh babers and his staff but at the same time babers has been a headman for four years um a lot of these guys under him have at least worked together and worked under babers together um so even with a little inexperience they've obviously gotten results to date and uh i think that both like you can take an experience if it's under an experienced head coach and under a system that everyone's worked in before. You can't do an experience when it's a new system and a new group um, at a new school, and, and if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think it's an important note. Um, like like we've been, like you've been saying, Schaefer went and brought kind of got the band back together in terms of guys he was friendly with or guys he coached alongside. Um, but it wasn't a cohesive unit that kind of what knew exactly the roles they were filling and, and how they worked together. Um, especially not recently because Schaefer had been at Syracuse for four years and had been at Michigan before that. So it had been a while since Schaefer coached with most of those Western Michigan and other Mac guys. Babers is bringing the majority of a staff that's been coaching in these roles together or in similar roles together. I know he's had some, some position movement. Um, the majority of the guys have been there for the four, full four years and they know that Babers is the head guy. They know the system, which has been <laughs> such an adventure for Syracuse um, since I've been, at least since I've been a fan, I think, uh, and I've, I've said before, I think we've ha- we've moved our offensive system um, from one year to the next, maybe once since 2008, and even then it, it would be t- 2010 to 2011, and that's kind of arguable. Um, but uh, actually, it would be yeah, 2010 to 2011, and even then the the focus was shifted to the Lon Tarter left. But um, this is like a group that kind of knows exactly what it wants to do. It's been doing it for four years, obviously at a lower level, but they've been wildly successful at those two levels. Babers has literally won the division he's in every year he's been a head coach. And that will probably not happen next year. Just saying, because we have, you know, Florida State and Clemson in the league. But he's he's a proven head coach. People can gripe about it being a Mac guy. But Syracuse was never going to go and get 
uh, an ACC head coach or an SEC head coach, that's that was a pipe dream. So um, as far as guys that were realistic for Syracuse to get, I think they pretty much hit a home run. And the fact that largely every national outlet that you read about uh, coaching changes on has said about roughly the same. Like, no one's been even, you know, iffy on this hire. Everyone seems to think that Syracuse did a really, really good job. And um, and that's that's probably the first time that's happened with a Syracuse hire in recent memory. So uh, hopefully that'll, uh, that works itself out. But um, I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I think uh, we already see the machinations of it going forward. They seem to have a plan. We've seen all these recruiting, um, a lot of offers sent out. We've, we've, you know, seen some guys who have, you know, that Moniel locked up. Um, they, they legitimately hit the ground running. Uh, I think we'll all feel pretty, a little better even when, uh, the full staff is announced and we know exactly what we're working with. But, um, I don't have a problem with the staff kind of, uh, trying to get as much out of this recruiting period as they can before we go silent uh, in what, four days. Yeah, no, I, I'm right there with you. And I think a lot of it, you know, speaks back to like what you said. Um, this was a home run hire and, and as a home run hire, there, there are some heightened expectations right off the bat. Um, I, I think that it also, it creates realism and heightened expectations all at once. Um, you know, I, I said on the site on Tuesday, you know, that, um, Davis is pretty much by most accounts, a top five hire, um, in, co- in power conferences this off season. And that's insane, um, for, for Syracuse to be able to say when you have schools like South Carolina you know, in USC, and Georgia and some others making hires in the same offseason, um, and even peer programs like Maryland and Rutgers, um, you know, making hires as well. It 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 just seems ins- crazy that you know we, we could get somebody um, with the experience, with a name, and with and with a, an identifiable system. Um, and you know what? It, it's like you were hinting at there. It's really kind of paid some dividends already on the recruiting trail. You know, whether that's convincing Mo Neal that he should stick around, um, I. I'm surprised I haven't heard more about, you know, Lindsey Scott. Um, I know that there's there's going to be some visits going on both on campus and in home in the next couple of days. Um, but in general, um, and this is, again, this is another article that was on the site, which I guess is part of the point we're here, we're tying back to the content there, um, was, you know, that Syracuse has an advantage in Northeast recruiting, and maybe Chris Ash brings in, um, you know, a, a Meyer-style spread offensive coordinator, but by and large we have a unique product in the Northeast, um, a region that's completely kind of, uh, you know, adrift when it comes to offensive talent and, and, and offensive recruiting. Um, I put up, you know, that, that graphic in the article, and I tweeted it out too, that there were only, in the last four years, there's only been four top uh, 50 offenses um, in the Northeast, and only one of them was top 40, and that was Syracuse, um, ranked 17th overall. Um, in 2012, and that was obviously four years ago. Um, in, in the meantime, uh, you know, Dino Baber's teams, uh, both at Eastern Illinois um, and at Bowling Green, um, would have all ranked amongst the top six offenses um, in the Northeast in that same stretch. Uh, to me, that's nuts. Um, even if you want to throw away the Eastern Illinois, here's uh, this year's uh, Bowling Green offense was fourth in the entire country. Um, pretty much doubled up our yardage <laughs> came close i think they had a good you know 40 percent more plays than we did um most games I, I think that there's just so much to like and, and and again it's not just about comparing to su uh which has had a putrid offensive product the last few years um it's about comparing to the northeast which 
you know, if those are the schools we're com- if competing against for, for top guys, if these are the schools we're competing against in conference, um, th- th- there's a lot to like about winning that Northeast recruiting battle year in and year out. Yeah, you made a great point in that article. Um, and I think yesterday we were in our internal chat, um, I looked it up when I know you or Sean was pitching that article. Um, in terms of plays per game, which, you know, it's not everything, but it just kind of, it's a very basic way to show pace and, and how many, I mean, basically if you run more plays, you're likely to store more points unless your offense is just uh, George McDonald's. Um, <laughs> I, I, I looked at all the ACC programs and all the uh, programs that have won a Lambert trophy. So basically everyone in the Northeast or Northeast adjacent, uh, the only program that ran more plays per game this year than Bowling Green in that list was Cincinnati. And it was by a fraction of a play. Uh, Cincinnati obviously has a very established coach with Tuberville, and they've been kind of running similar things for a long time now. Um, and, and that includes schools like West Virginia, which was just below Bowling Green, Clemson, Duke, UMass, and then the, mo- the vast majority of the Northeast is slow. Uh, the bottom schools were Army, Syracuse, Boston College, Penn State, UConn, all running under 64 plays a game, which is just like, it's a different sport. Um so, like you said, this is going to be a very unique product in the Northeast. It's a, a fairly unique one nationally. There's only a handful of, I mean, the, the Bryles tree is just starting to blossom. Uh, you have Montgomery at Tulsa. You have, you know, I'm sure Kendall will end up at the job, probably a smaller Texas job somewhere at some point soon. Uh, you have a couple guys here and there, but um, Babers is the probably the most successful so far direct descendant of the Bryles tree. He runs a very close system to what Bryles has. Um, he'll probably even run a more pure version of that system at the dome, which is great because I mean, you're going to be playing, spending at least half the, the year in a controlled environment. And then you assume at least half of the road games, probably more are going to be played in pretty good weather. Um, it, it's, it's like you said, it, it, we've been doing a lot. This was a great hire, not only because it was a proven head coach, and a guy who runs an exciting system and a guy who can exploit what the dome's advantages are because we always spend so much time talking about the disadvantages of the dome. The, the main one is that it's indoors and you can run a, you can run a track type offense here, uh, which we've never done. Um, but it's also great that we seem to be exploiting these inefficiencies that so many Northeastern programs ignore because there's this weird culture of smash mouth football. That's a, from a bygone era when the Northeast was actually competitive in college football. Um, and I just don't think, unless you're an SEC program or mostly just like Alabama, you can win at a high level that way. Um, I think you need to go and find ways to spread the field and and go overcome talent de- uh, deficiencies wherever you can because recruiting is tough in the Northeast. You're not going to be able to go uh, steal a ton of guys from Florida. You can get a couple, but you're you're fighting an uphill battle if you're trying to out muscle or or play the same styles as those more talented teams and now we're not going to be doing that we're going to be maximizing our talent which is which is great yeah and, and you bring up i mean obviously some great points there and in particular the out muscling aspect you're not going to find the kids with the size to out muscle anybody um, if you're recruiting primarily in the northeast it's just not how northeast football works you know, both at the high school level um, and at the college level you're just you're not going to be able to, to have better size um, you know, than the majority of the Big Ten, um, I'd say almost the entire Big Ten outside of Maryland and, and Rutgers, um, say most of the SEC, if not all of it, 
um, parts of the Big 12, depending. I think more offensive line than defense. And then, you know, Stanford is the only Pac-12 school that really puts the type of size you need out in the line. Um, yeah, trying to play that sort of ball um, when you're not really getting better than three-star recruits um, is a bit foolhardy. I know Northeast football in general is a wacky. Um, a couple years back, uh, former BC uh, Interruption editor uh, Brian Favitt and I were in the midst of starting a book um, on Northeast football, and it just th- th- there's there's too many twists and turns. There's there's too much um, aggravation. <laughs> involving the last 20 years of Northeast football uh, to really dig in. Maybe that project will start up again in earnest once uh, Syracuse changes. Uh, it starts the change in that culture, but uh, we shall see. Um, I noticed you were talking about some of the machinations of the offense, though. I think that uh, would be a good place to go kind of um, until we get to halftime. You know, a lot of people think that the the spread is is, is – I think a lot of people equate spread with air raid – um, and those two things aren't necessarily, I mean, yes, there's definitely relations. There's a lot of overlap. Um, one can, can comprise the other. But, um, you know, the, Baber's spread is very much run heavy. Uh, if you watch the Bowling Green game, you saw uh, not even big backs, just shifty backs who were able to do a lot between the tackles um, and, and suck the defense in while they exploited, you know, screens and some deep passes. I mean, yes, Matt Johnson set a shitload of records uh, at Bowling Green, um, and, and did so in fewer games than, you know, guys like Ben Roethlisberger and Byron Leftwich and others, um, and, you know, at the Mac level, but he, uh, he needed that run game and that run game. I mean, that's the thing. It was, it was crazy how punishing that attack was, um, despite having two guys, um, who were, you know, only hanging around about between 190 and 210. Um, and I think that that to me, you know, we're, we're not going to get those, you know, like as many punishing backs we're not going to get as many you know deadly fast backs but we can get guys who are shifty and then they get inner phillips um like a jordan fredericks those type of guys seem to play perfectly into this and and so anyone expecting a pass happy offense and fearing what happens if eric dungy's forced to pass 45 times a game i think we're we're actually going to see a team that that does exactly what we've been calling for for years and that's run the damn ball yeah it's 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 a passing offense so much more balance than people are giving it credit for, um, especially this year where Bowling Green had two really nice backs. It's interesting because I'm looking at their advanced numbers on, on Bill Connolly's profile. Um, you look at their rushing ISO uh, P, uh, points per play. It's only at it, – it's a, it's a ranked 100th in the country, which is not great. It's not an explosive running game. But they're ranked two in nationally in rushing uh, S&P Plus, and they're ranked third nationally in rushing success rate. So basically, they're running the ball when the offense, the defense gives them the field to run the ball in, and they are picking up solid, consistent yardage, and they are forcing teams to respect the run. They're very rarely breaking out big runs, but the defense can't, uh, they can't go play you know, eight, eight guys deep um, because they'll give up seven yards a carry. So it forces defense to play pretty balanced, uh, a pretty balanced form of defense. And then Matt Johnson uh, was one of the best bid play quarterbacks of the year. Um, which so it, it really it takes the very basic uh, offensive principle of, of using the run to set up the pass, um, and it does just that. It just looks different than your average eye formation, but it also kind of fluctuates between because you have all these screens and and. 
obviously we have a we have a very rough relationship with streams with this program <laughs> because of George McDonald and uh, uh, forgetting the offensive coordinator from Oneida from Clemson who was terrible. Um, that Maroon's first OC who we fired after like ten games. Uh, uh, shit, yeah, no. great radio. I know um, <laughs> that guy. So basically, we have a really bad relationship with streams because. Those guys basically called a stream pass to run a stream pass, and if it didn't work, it got blown up for three-yard losses, and uh, it just was a mess. Um, most of this offense is going – most of the stream passes we'll see are probably built-in option plays. So it's, hey, I'm counting the numbers in the bots. They have eight stacked in the bots. We're not going to run. We have a mismatch on the outside. We're going to hit the screen, pick up five yards. Hey, now they're not stacking the bots anymore. We'll run the ball. Now they're trying to stack the ball. It just you're using the run to set up the pass, and you're using the screens to set up the run, which then set up the deep pass. So it's very basic. Um, there's probably not a ton of of uh, like different plays. It's more concepts, and it's going to probably look very after we get it, you know, get it rolling. Um, it should look quite fluid, and that's what allows them to put up like 80, 90, 100 plays because it all just kind of runs together, and they're snapping the ball, making a play, going to the next one. So um, I think it depends on the year in terms of like and the, and the talent of the team, how much we'll run, how much we'll pass. But both are very it's – not, it's not, you know, Mike Leach's air raid where he forgets the run exists half the time and he just passes the ball. Um, everything seems to have a lot of purpose, which is exciting. Yeah, I mean, you know what? This is – and I try to get this across in the article. This isn't going to be some some wild culture change. Um, it's going to be a return to what we were supposed to be doing to begin with. Um, you know, like, like you said, it's not a complicated system. It really isn't. There's there's dive right, dive left, and then there's screen right or screen left. Um, and he'll work. I mean, Matt Johnson was able to, to really do a nice job painting both sides when it came to the screens. And then, you know, I forgot who uh, posted that uh, link in Slack today. It was about it was like 40% of, uh, of Johnson's yardage came on deep balls, uh, which is insane. Yeah, that was me. He won like uh, Pro Football Focus gave out um, like uh, what should we call it awards? High school, like yeah, the, yeah, the you know, yeah. Um, I'll find the article here somewhere. Um, basically, uh, uh, Matt Johnson got was based, the the best like all quarterback, which is probably not exactly what this offense is designed to do but he was also very good and they had good receivers so uh, i think we have a quarterback that's pretty good and we have a couple of receivers it was superlatives that's the word we were looking for because we can't think of words we'll get the clemson offensive coordinator's name but um just we're most likely to throw it long i'll just read the quick excerpt matt uh matt johnson at 1577 which is out of his what 400 4700 yards total uh, yards on deep passes. Uh, no quarterback gained more yards on deep passes. Those that travel 20 plus yards downfield in the air. The Bowling Green's Matt Johnson, who gained uh, 1577 yards and 18 touchdowns in such throws. He connected with his receivers on 37 deep throws, which means almost half his deep completions went for touchdowns. And seven different Falcon receivers taught deep passes from Johnson. Um, last year's top guy in this category was Rakeem Cato from Marshall, who was also very, very good. So. Um, Dungy, we, I, I mean, Dungy has pretty good touch going deep, um, has a pretty strong arm. Uh, he's not a very, he's not all that similar to Matt Johnson. He's way more mobile. Matt Johnson's a little bigger. Um, but I don't see any reason why Dungy can't thrive in this offense. Yeah. And you know what? Like the deep ball too brings up another like perfect foil to, to what 
Syracuse was doing last year. Like that's the thing. What George McDonald, the screens weren't the problem. It was that the fact that they were unblocked and they were, you know, just ran into the ground when they didn't work. For Lester's offense, it was that it either leaned too heavily on the option and beat the shit out of whoever was a quarterback, um, or it didn't target its playmakers, or it, it picked the weird times to, to use the deep ball. I think you only saw, like, I think it was like five to seven pass, deep passes, maybe, um, by Matt Johnson um, in the Friday game. And thing is, they had Roger Lewis, who was a, a great receiver, I believe he's a senior. Uh, you know, you had a connection between two seniors who'd been playing with each other for a while. Um, I, I think that Dungey and Steve Ishmael and, uh, you know, Grizzly Esteem played together enough um, this year to start generating a little bit of a rapport. Um, but Ishmael can beat people deep. Um, he can also beat people in the flat. I think you, you saw a lot of Ishmael in, in Roger Lewis. Um, I think as long as the team, and I think that it's probably the first thing that, uh, that Dino Babers um, is going to talk about, um, you know, going into, you know, who fits what in the scheme is moving Irv Phillips back to running back. Um, I, I think you're just going to see pieces fit, and I don't think that, that the ramp up for, for this team is going to be as crazy as people might might just assume. It doesn't mean we're going to get it right away. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect, but I think this team's going to come out looking uh, much more polished than I think um, people will believe, um, though you know, TBD on offensive line play, because I think that plays a huge, huge part here, too. Yeah, and with McDonald, like, I think his concepts were probably fairly sound. He just, clearly, he was doing it on the fly. He didn't really know how to coherently put it together and then call plays where Babers doesn't even hold a play sheet. Um, He just kind of knows what needs to happen. So it's like a total shift from there. You have a guy who was learning the system on the fly. He was trying to create something out of these pieces he took from other places that he saw work, but he didn't quite know. He didn't seem to totally get why things fit together the way they do. Where Baber is just like, is, I mean, uh, he used the joke before I did, but it's like the Matrix where he just kind of sees all the coding flying at him and knows exactly <laughs> what play needs to be called. And he doesn't need to look down or he just kind of absorbs the information on the field and then spits out the next play call and it comes in 15 seconds and then the team's just flying down the field. So it's like, a lot of the same concepts and just delivered in such a more uh, competent and fast and um, assured way. And uh, I'm quite excited. I'm like mad that we have to wait however many months now. Uh, 267 days as of Thursday. But but who is counting? Uh, me, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you know what? Uh, Babers is kind of some offensive savant. That's pretty awesome. Uh, I think, though, before we get to halftime, that means we have to, uh, in, in just over a couple months of existence, I think we have to retire the Baylor slander train now that, we, uh, <laughs> now that we've hired a, uh, a Bryles disciple. And that said, I want to point out um, that I was ready to retire it um, after the second loss, um, and then I was definitely ready to, were, ready to retire after the were third they almost- loss. The third loss when they made up a new offense completely on the fly. Yeah, that was remarkable. <laughs> like, I, I in, in real time, I was like, oh, my God, they're losing to Texas. Texas is so bad. And then as I, like, sat on it for a bit, I was like, they just created an offense with a wide receiver at quarterback. And, and le- at midway, th- <laughs> midway through the game, like, not, not going into the week, like, their 13 quarterback, who was a legit quarterback, got hurt, like, early in the first quarter or something. And mid-game, they plugged in a... a down the depth chart receiver, 
made up an entirely new offense and almost beat a team that, while not very good, has a, a, a coach that we know has that's won a BCS game and a, t- a roster that's full of four and five star players. <laughs> like that's absurd. Uh, that's absurd. Right. So, and if they had another, if they had another. 10 minutes they would have won the game like you know you can always say that about a lot of teams but like legitimately if Baylor had either a day prepare or another five minutes of game time they win so like I know your, your issues with Baylor go beyond the uh the actual oh, um, on on the field they're, they're they're a joy to watch my, my issues yeah are, are, are much more about um you the know nouveau riche the nouveau riche that the, the how college football process works I know uh what was it uh, was it Kevin McGuire? Kevin McGuire tweeted out today that he was at Oregon's facility and they had a Rose Bowl trophy for a Rose Bowl game they didn't win. And, like, that, that, that's the type of shit that drives me nuts uh, uh, about nouveau riche programs. Like, I'd rather have a mostly empty trophy case like Syracuse does and not claim anything you don't than, like... I mean, it, it doesn't even... It's nouveau riche plus, like... I know I have an SEC co-worker. She went to Ole Miss... And she claims the 1959 championship, and I, <laughs> I, and I want to lose my goddamn mind, <laughs> like, because no, you can't do that, despite the one like wonky poll out of like 15 at the time that did it. But getting out of that rabbit hole, um, I appreciate what Baylor's done. I think Bryles, um, what you saw there was actually an interesting variation on the the high school spread that really an, an air raid that's kind of all over Texas high school football. And obviously, Bryles, you know, was a late bloomer when it came to coaching. Uh, he, he definitely made a lot of hay in high school first. Um, and, and yeah, you know, in, in Texas high school programs, a lot of it is you plug in your best athlete, typically a wide receiver. Um, you throw him in a quarterback and you see what happens. And uh, there was a variation on this for those who watch Friday Night Lights back when it was on. Um, that's kind of what that team did. Um, and that was kind of a nod to what actually happens in Texas high school football. Um, and and it, it was it's funny to see Bryles be able to do that on the fly and just go right back to his high school days um, and pretty much run, you know, again, the Texas high school offense, you know, in, in real time. Yeah. I mean, it was almost like the old before Oregon was Denny Marcus Mariota's when they had like just the crazy athlete quarterbacks and it's a Vistic couldn't throw at all. <laughs> like he was just throwing was not an option. So he, they just ran like wishbone concepts. It was, it was wild. So, I almost want to go like rewatch that game at some point, but I don't have nearly enough time right now. Do it. Rewatching games is fun, I swear. Sort of. Sometimes. When you're not watching 2013-14 series. Or 15. Or 15. That was the year of the year. Well, 13, I guess. 13 was bad. We won some games. No, 13 was bad. The offense is bad. Yeah. 14 the was worse. The defense is great. Yeah, 14 was worse. 15 had some games. Like, arguably, there were a couple. Like, the Clemson game was not awful to watch again. Even though we lost LSU, the same deal. Like the first half sucked, the second half was like it was always a team that couldn't just put it to, to it together a full game, and then, and that's ultimately what bit it's what bit Syracuse last year, it, this past year, it's what bit Lester, it's what bit Schaefer's entire tenure is that it was a team that could never really put together uh, two full halves of football, and you know even in, in the in a couple blowouts, I mean those aren't full games of football. You did all the work in one half. Um, so yeah, I. Uh, I mean, that's not to pile on Schaefer and staff. I, I wish Schaefer the best at Maryland and everybody else, wherever they get hired, I wish them the best of luck unless they go to Rutgers or UConn or BC. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think, 
you know, what happened happened, and what's going to happen is also going to happen. And I, I, I definitely like where we're going better than where we've been. Yep. I, I think uh, I'm yet to see uh, – that's not true. I've seen a couple a couple people on the internet who one, – one person on one of the message boards of the comment sections who said he actually liked Lester's offense more than Babers, which – is the height of insanity. Yeah. But like 99.9% of people I've seen on the Syracuse internets have been very excited about this. And uh, when the new, before the news actually broke um, on that Friday night uh, when we were pretty sure it was going to be Babers, but we weren't like, we were waiting for it to get announced. Um, I was just searching his name on Twitter just to gauge reaction. And like you had a ton of South Carolina fans who were pretty sure they were in the same exact boat with Muschamp. And they're all like, the and the, the match championship was on, and all of them were like, why don't we go and talk to this guy from Bowling Green? Is he really going to go to Syracuse? So that's what you have to know about this hire. <laughs> an SEC program that had an open job uh, on October 12th, hired a guy, and a bunch of their fans were like, why don't we go hire this other guy that Syracuse ended up hiring uh, two weeks after firing their last coach? Yep. We did good, Mark. You did good, Mark Coyle, and, and Floyd Little, and... And Kent Siverud and everyone else. Siverud in particular. And, and Herman Frazier was involved too. Good for him. Herm. We 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 knocked Herm, but apparently he was in in this thing. So Arizona, props to Arizona State ties. Herm was a Herm was a wasn't he a gold medalist? Yeah, Herm was a something like that. Yeah, yeah. Herm was a gold medalist and and went to Arizona State. And uh, Babers has a master's degree from Arizona State, so that uh, sure that tie definitely helps us out a little bit. Um, <laughs> he would put it over the edge, sure, surely. Now we're gonna play. The dot the dot. Now we're gonna schedule Arizona State, please. Now, um, although at the same time, I, I uh, you know what? No, screw it. I don't want to. I don't want to do that because Rich Rod had our number while he was at West Virginia. Yeah, let's wait until uh, he leaves, which he will. Well, Arizona State, it's Graham, who we only played once because it's oh, yeah. hilarious. That's right. Where's Rich Rod now? Arizona. There Arizona. Yeah, Arizona. We, Arizona didn't pay in, in oil money. We've never played them. L- literally. <laughs> we have never, I don't think we've ever played Arizona. I'm pretty sure I, I know I did an article about this like a year ago or so, of like which power conference teams are we going to schedule just because? And like it was based on like that we haven't scheduled them yet. Uh, that's, I don't remember us ever. I mean, we definitely haven't recently. I don't remember ever hearing about a Syracuse Yeah, I don't game, think, so I don't think have. that could be right. Yeah. Oh, well, in that case, you don't have to worry about it. Um, anyway, halftime. A little late, but better than never. Uh, Dan, what have you been drinking? Uh, a couple things. Uh, some number nine, which I always kind of default to. Uh, some Dales, which I also always default to. Probably a few too many Dales, if we're being honest. There it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had a Kilt Lifter from Four Pete's Brewing. Which is, uh, I think it's it's from Arizona, but it's like a Scottish style ale, which was pretty interesting. Um, I thought it was pretty decent. Um, and then lots of warm drinks because it's starting to get cold here. Uh, so enjoying those. Hoping to get some. Uh, hoping some of these bars around here start making some warm cider. I've seen that a couple places, and that's always good. Very very nice. Um... What I've been drinking? Oh, well, we actually we took a week off, so we have like two weeks worth of stuff to go through. Um, see, I had I was down in North Carolina for 
a little bit of time. So enjoyed some Freaking Nature from Wicked Weed, uh, Westbrook Goza, which is the best Goza on the market, period. Um, we had Serenity from Wicked Weed. Um, just a really good uh, saison with Brett. Um, had the always excellent Founders Breakfast Stout that will be down in Southern California starting January. Uh, and I am very excited by that. Scrolling through this extensive list. Um, had Perennial Artist Nails uh, Regalia. It's another, uh, I want to say it was a Saison. It was a while ago. Um, enjoyed Monkish, their uh, Holiday El Magnificat, uh, the 2012 edition. It was on tap when I was kind of wandering into some places during this uh, holiday parade in town. Uh, Modern Time City of the Sun cans are out. Uh, for the next couple months, uh, it's just a really good kind of tropical IPA. Um, tried out uh, Council Brewing's Beatitude Raspberry Tart Saison, uh, which Dan, you would really like. Uh, it's like a small amount of sour, but just it, it it has a nice raspberry flavor that doesn't doesn't overdo it. It's 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 more tart than sweet. I probably would like that a lot. Yeah. I like most raspberries, and I like most sours, <laughs> and I like a lot of saisons. So sounds good for me. Perfect. Um, I had Noble. They had a one-off uh, oatmeal stout. It's called Part of a Balanced Breakfast. I hope they eventually uh, bottle that one. Um, had the very interesting Arg uh, from the brewery. It was a coconut rice lager. Oh, well, uh, sorry, Imperial Pilsner. My bad. Um, so a very interesting beer. It wasn't too sweet. Uh, don't have a ton of rice beers brewed by American breweries, obviously. It's more of a uh, Japanese brewery uh, thing. And I had uh, the very enjoyable Mega Fortunate Islands. Um, Fortunate Islands is a really good beer. I used to take to the beach with me. It's a wheat beer. Uh, this, on the other hand, is a double IPA, um, kind of shifting on that concept. Um, there's pretty much no malt to be found. It's just a shitload of really uh, juicy, citrusy hops. Um, highly recommended for those um, out this way in the country. So, yeah, that's all the, uh, that's all the booze I drink. But moving on, speaking of drinking, Syracuse basketball. Um, things were rough this past week, but they seem to get better against Colgate. I mean, not, we're not out of the woods, but uh, Dan, what was the most concerning part about the two-game losing streak to Georgetown and Wisconsin? Um, our rebounding is an issue, <laughs> like a big one. Um, not that we didn't guess it would be somewhat of an issue, but it, it's... Basically, the zone always has its issues with the rebounding, and usually you can overcome them with a good team. And But this year, we both are obviously playing the zone, and we also have no depth inside uh, because, you know, apparently we can't get, uh, you know, we struggle to get great minutes out of uh, Coleman, who had a decent game against Georgetown, and then last game against Colgate, he only grabbed two rebounds. Um, I forget what his output for the Wisconsin game was, but they, they killed us inside. And then uh, Chino is obviously kind of a missing man. Um, and then other than that, we're just really undersized. Uh, you have Lydon, who should not be playing the five if we can avoid it, doing his best, blocking some shots. And, you know, he's just not he, asking a true freshman who's played the three most of his high school career to play center in, you know, ACC ball or, you know, obviously Wisconsin, Georgetown are in ACC, but power conference basketball is not a winning formula. Um and Roberson's a good rebounder, but he's still, he's not a huge guy. And him, 
you know, he's going to be at a, a size disadvantage playing the four most of the time. He's uh, a pretty instinctive rebounder, so he gets away with it. But when he's your best guy on the floor and you don't have a guy like Christmas um, at center, you're going to struggle. So I think that has to be the main issue. Uh, we kind of knew this team would have games where they just went flat from three. We had two of them in Georgetown and Wisconsin. Uh, and, you know, we weren't that far from beating Wisconsin, uh, despite not uh, a probably subpar shooting performance. Georgetown, obviously, we got run off the floor um, for most of the game, came back. But overall, uh, if this team shoots well, it's probably going to win. If it shoots poorly um, and gets dominated on the glass like that, it's going to be a struggle. Uh, and I think it's just going to be that kind of, you know, you don't quite know what you're going to get night, night to night from this team. It's going to be a pretty volatile roster all year, I think. Um, hopefully, day one comes on, but I'm, I'm holding out hope. But I, I don't know that either of us can be quite sure what he'll give us uh, come March. Um, I think it seems like Hobb is trying to get him a little more involved than Bayheim was, a little longer leash. But uh, unless he just turns into like a bona fide 30-minute game guy, which is asking probably too much from him, uh, I think that's going to be an issue all year. Yeah, I'm definitely, definitely seeing a bunch of issues that we could point to. Um, the first one being the one you already discussed at length, the, the rebounding, I think. Not having a a guy that we can we can lean on. I mean, we figured maybe Tyler Roberson was this guy, but it doesn't seem like he is. Um, you know, someone we can lean on for 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 nine to ten rebounds a night um, would be great. I think we usually have someone who can get seven and a half to nine, but you figure with an increased pace and increased shots, um, both because of a new system for Syracuse as well as um, a decreased shot clock, you were going to see more um, rebound opportunities. And I feel like we're just getting absolutely housed. Um, it's not great, and I think that, that that poses some long-term concerns and ones that we really can't fix. Um, things we can fix, though, um, in, in the concerns pile, um, I, I think that this team is... If they're going to be dedicated to three, that's great. But um, because we have enough talent on the roster, um, if they're not falling, you know, we can and should be able to, to, to dribble drive, and we should be able to... You know, take it to the bucket. It just doesn't seem like we're we're it seems like we're capable of doing it, but it seems like we're refusing to do it. Uh, Michael Benajay appears to be the only player, um, you know, a, a, as far as you know, one through three anyway, you know, willing to you know take the ball into the paint. Uh, Trevor Cooney uh, has has become just a lost individual on the floor, and I think that that's that's something to watch out for. But it's also something to 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 get a little perturbed by because I don't I don't think we're going to see him come off the floor no matter how much he struggles um, and he looked pretty bad in the first half of that uh, that Georgetown game and at this point you know he's become a bit of a liability we're looking at a, an assist to turnover ratio barely above one uh, Steele's numbers have gone down in recent games uh, things are things are coming apart a little bit for Trevor Cooney as he's only shooting now you know th- not even 35% from field goal range um, well, I mean sorry for uh, field goal uh, percentage, uh, so it's it's frustrating to see that. Um, it's frustrating to see that, that we can't lean on him. That we have pretty much buried most of our bench. Um, that we're not really going to let anybody else take minutes off these guys. While again, uh, we made this comparison a couple weeks ago that this this is already looking like the uh, the oh seven oh eight team when uh, when Devendorf was out very early when when Routens was injured all season and they basically ran a five or six man rotation. And that team, even if they had been able to make the tournament, was just completely dead. Um, 
by the time you know February rolled around. I feel like this year is it, we're doing this unnecessarily, um, and you know I'm not one that's going to sit around and, and doubt a bunch of guys who have you know decades upon decades of coaching experience. But um, I, I've seen this movie. You have every Syracuse fan has. Um, we've got to find a way to, to reduce some minutes going into ACC play. Um, but at the same time, we're, we're also not putting teams away effectively enough that the, that we can give extended rest. Um, but I'm happy to hear opinions from you or, or anyone else, uh, uh, whether or not I'm, I'm, I'm off base here. No, I think you, you're right on a lot of that. Um, the Tooney's tough because he obviously faces um, – a lot of the criticism from fans and, and a lot of it, you know, rightfully so. Um, but just because the easiest thing to look at is his reputation as a shooter and his shooting numbers. Um, at the same time, I think uh, you, like you said, his, his steals were going down and his, you know, he struggled a little bit on that end of the floor, but I still think he's too valuable defensively to pull off most of the time. Um, and a lot of that, you know, beyond steals and everything else are, is very hard to quantify in stats. So, I think um, it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to really um, totally understand what Tooney's value is on the floor, uh, but I, I think he would help himself a, a lot by limiting some of the bad shots he takes. If he's wide open, I don't have a problem with Tooney shooting ever really. But, but he's we missing. have four guys. Well, I, I get that, yeah. but he's not also he's also not just missing open shots. Um, but we have when we have four guys who can spread the floor like they do and all shoot. I mean, there just isn't a lot of reason to take really dumb shots unless it's at the end of the shot clock. Um, so hopefully that changes. But I think we could live with Tooney being as streaky as he is if we were getting production from the guys storing inside, but we're not. So and like you said, the, the drives of the basket is an issue across the board as well. I think. We saw Malachi doing it better, you know, pretty well early on, but he's tailed off. Tooney struggles to complete when he gets in. He does get fouled a decent amount, which is nice, but um, really it's Benajay finishing, and that's about it. Occasionally Roberson will get ahead of steam and get there, but he also, he and Richardson both get called for a, a pretty large, uh, pretty sizable amount of charges from what I can tell. Um, I haven't looked at the numbers, but... Um, just a lot of basically the team is is kind of out of balance right now in terms of how they score and uh, how the rotational minutes look and it's hard to I mean this team has a has always leaned on its seniors um, unless a freshman is a huge talent like Richardson it's hard for them to break into the into the rotation when you're a Frank Howard or and, and obviously Caleb Joseph is just a ghost so. Um, I'm hoping that these next couple easier games will allow one of those two guards and, and you know, maybe day one to kind of get into a, a flow and, and kind of figure things out before Bayheim comes back and we get into ACC play. But, um, and I'm, I'm sure the games won't be too, I don't, I don't expect us to lose any of these before the, the ACC play starts. St. John's is pretty terrible and they're the only real name team there. But um, it, it's a little bit disconcerting uh, when, once we get into conference play, although we proved the week before in Atlantis that we can beat pretty good teams, I think A and M and UConn will be pretty decent by the end of the year. So, hopefully, this team is just inconsistent and it was kind of a, you know, invalid being number fourteen after the Atlantis tournament. 
Yeah, and I think you know the, the heightened expectations definitely hurt. Um, but you know, I yeah, I, I want to recalibrate myself a little bit. Like, I was definitely pissed, like a lot of other people in the first half, and Cooney was just playing like a liability. Um, and but I agree with you too. I, I think he provides a lot of value defensively. And I wrote this a couple weeks ago. Um, I know Michael Burke also wrote on the site a couple weeks ago. Like, Cooney just needs to shoot less. You, you look at the numbers here. Um, he can actually stay on the floor entirely. Um, if you're going to shoot 35% from the floor, if you're going to shoot 33% from three, take less shots, and 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 then those numbers either fix themselves or they they stay that way, but they don't negatively impact the team as much. I mean, he's taken five less, you know, field goal tries uh, versus Benajay, you know, but he's made 20. He's made almost 20 less. Um, you know, Malachi is able to hit at a higher rate on less volume. Um, Cooney in general, like, y- you see his numbers. He he hits free throws, um, He but he takes too many threes. He takes too many poor field goals in general. Like, if somebody like him who, who can hit from the floor um, and can get to the line, and again, I said this in the article, and others have said it too, drive the lane. Just just drive. Like, if, you're, if you can't for the life of you stop shooting... Then drive the lane and try to draw fouls and get yourself to the line and, and generate positive um, outcomes for the team. You know, like I said, it's, it's obvious that Hopkins isn't pulling him off the floor and, and Bayheim's not going to do it either because, yeah, they, like you said, they do lean on seniors. But I think, you know, Cooney could make tweaks to his game to, to increase his value exponentially. And, and I just feel like, you know, it, I know the turnovers say that he is 25 um, on the year, but, but that doesn't include the the stupid threes um, that he's missing it doesn't include just the bad possessions that that cause you know uh, the, the the court to flip uh, back in the other direction I think he he was a liability for the first time I felt like he was an absolute liability in the first half against Georgetown um, and the way that he can prevent that though is again just just take less shots just if you're gonna take a shot maybe try to to do so in the paint you can you can draw a foul. Um, and just be smart, be in control. I felt that a lot of times I've seen him on the floor against Wisconsin a little bit and against Georgetown a lot. Uh, very reckless, very out of control. Um, and, and that's that's if, if that's going to happen from your senior, then you might as well have a freshman out there. Yeah, and I think he, he if any of anyone on the team has, and we've seen this for years now with him, um, he definitely presses, which is an issue. Uh, last year, you could almost um, understand it more when, only guy that we that took a, a high volume of shots and uh, you know until towards the middle of the year we didn't really know that Benajay was going to become the shooter he is. Um, this year, I mean, it's like you said, like we said before, like there are just enough guys where he doesn't need to be taking unnecessary ones. Uh, the ball movement looks pretty good most of the time, but when the team goes cold, he definitely feels like it's on him to really get him out of it. And it'd be nice if we just got the ball in the hands of the under guys a little bit more. Um, I just, I just think that that would be a better option right now, unless he just gets on one of his real like hot streaks. In which case, he's fine riding him, just, but he gets unconscious occasionally, which is great. We just haven't seen it yet this year. Um, but I mean, the other problem is you like. I think the team ideally would love to cut his minutes down from like thirty-eight or whatever it is to thirty-two, but. Howard saw, you know, we saw some nice things from him against Georgetown, although he did foul out in 13 minutes, which is disconcerting. Uh, um, Caleb just, 
like he looks okay for like a minute at a time, but then he just looks absolutely lost on defense. He, for whatever reason, can't like never keeps his hands up. Um, I just, I really, I thought we'd see some nice development from Caleb in a smaller role this year. Uh, obviously, he was thrust into that starting point guard uh, point guard job, which was probably not good for him last year. Uh, really, just not seeing it. Um, I Howard, you can excuse a little bit because he's only been in college for a couple months, but. Caleb, you, I, I really thought we'd get more out of, and it's just not happening at all. No, and I think you know this. This speaks to what we said on the site, what we said on the podcast since the uh, the NCAA uh, ruling came down, um, and, and and that's just you know even with the reduced suspension, uh, the reduced uh, scholarship penalty now um, is that we need to we really need to hit on guys. And I'm not saying that that, that Joseph or uh, or Howard or anyone is a failure yet. Um, we've seen plenty of guys, you know, go through a ton of strife for a few years, um, and then Bloom is a junior or senior. But unfortunately, you know, the models change for Syracuse, and I hope that we can adapt quickly enough. Um, especially Hopkins, who you know, this is his first go around as a head coach. Um, you know, we, we we definitely need to be able to, you know. I, I'm not going to say fail fast, but we, we need to find a way, um, you know, to, to really get the most out of these guys early on. And, and if that means changing the way we do things and develop players, then, then it needs to be because you know, we don't have as many scholarships um, right now. We, we, we need to hit home runs on all these guys. Um, and, and I'm just I'm worried that if we, we continue doing things the way we've been doing them, that it might create more speed bumps than we necessarily need. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, with with Joseph and Howard, like those guys weren't they were four star guys, but they were on the lower end of. I mean, I guess Joseph was probably thought of a little bit better, but they weren't like the absolute home run guys. Like we have coming in with Tyus Battle, who will probably start a point card next year uh, at six seven, which is crazy. Um, so there are two sides of that coin. Uh, obviously, every scholarship becomes more valuable, but. There's also a lot more playing time to give out um, to individuals. So, uh, I, I mean, we've, we've kind of talked about the, pro, the potential pros of it. Um, I think you always want to have more scholarships available than less. But um, I think we'll just have to see how it plays out. I mean, next year's class is really good. We're still, we don't have a lot going on beyond that yet, but we're involved with a lot of top guys, as we usually are. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm interested to see how Hopkins can use hand. Um, I don't pin really the Georgetown loss on him. I th- actually thought he did some interesting things. I don't know that Beheim would have gone to Howard, which gave us kind of a boost, um, which was something I think Hopkins probably did that I don't know that we would have seen otherwise. Um, but I'm not overly worried about it because Howard has been the guy in terms of the recruiting anyway. So I think we'll, our recruiting level will probably remain about the same, and I think he'll understand kind of the the – hurdles that we have um, where we really can't, like you said, we, it becomes a lot worse to strike out. Agreed. And I think, you know, it's going to be interesting now to see, you know, obviously we don't have, and thanks a lot NCAA, we don't have that extra scholarship. Well, we don't have, we didn't have the time to, to put in on that extra scholarship because we didn't know if we'd have it or not um, in the early commitment period. So now we're going to have to do some more work at the back end that we might not have otherwise um, and for those who don't follow basketball and football recruiting as much as you know we do on the site or, or others do elsewhere, 
Uh, basketball wraps itself up a lot earlier. Um, there's very little drama uh, when it comes to signing day. Uh, people, kids like to be locked in. Schools like to be locked in. There's so few roster spots. It just makes a lot more sense. Um, and obviously, this is going to have to change things a little bit for us uh, as we try to fill uh, the extra spot. I, I do think, though, in general, um, pivoting back to this season, uh, what we have here is, I think, a, as much as it sucks, especially to lose to Georgetown, um, what we have is a golden opportunity to, to set expectations back to where they should have been to begin with. Um, I, I think that the Battle for Atlantis, um, and it went over a decent but not great UConn team. I mean, they're probably they're probably a tournament team, but still. Uh, and an A&M team that's also decent but not great, um, but they're also a tournament team. It's It got gave us an inflated sense of self and, and made us forget all the things that we were worried about for the, the games leading up to those two wins. Um, and I, 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 as much as it sucks to lose, I, I think that it might have done us more favors to lose a couple and, and, and get a little more grounded again. That this is probably its team that's regular season ceiling is probably around 22, 23 wins, maybe 24 in a stretch, but probably 22 or 23 wins. Um, and you know, that they, they are a team that could get hot at the right time. And I mean, it's a, it's a perfect situation for a, for a tournament team to, to potentially get really hot from three. But, you know, right now I, I think, I think it's a good reset and it's a, it's a great way to, to go into the, the holidays and, and before ACC play, um, to, to have a, I think a better head on all fans shoulders as well as the team too, perhaps. Yeah. I think you're asking a lot if you want Syracuse fans to not, uh, quickly and abruptly change their expectations <laughs> from game to game. Um, I mean, anyone who's seen my Twitter feed during football games would, uh, would know that I'm not the best proponent of that either. Way easier said than done. Um, I do. I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world to lose a couple of games in December. Like we, I think we as a program became very unused to it from basically between the Cleveland state half court nonsense shot in 2008 and the temple loss at MSG. We don't think we lost a non-conference regular season game. And those were five or six years apart. So we were, and we played a lot of good teams despite what everyone wants to tell you. We played Florida like three times in Kansas and Michigan state and, so many were, others. Some, yeah. North Carolina. Kind of had to get events. into it. There were so many good games in there. Yeah. So we won all of those. And um, so I don't think, I mean, we, we lost uh, one or two last year. We lost St. John's, obviously. Um, it definitely seems like we probably grew used to just dominating non-conference and taking it for granted. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to lose in December. Uh, you hope the team improves. But luckily, it's not football where that dooms you forever. Um, I think Syracuse will still be a pretty good bet for the tournament. I think it's going to be a team where, you know, there are some days where they're unbeatable and there's some days. It's, it's, it almost reminds me, it's not the same team in terms of how, how they do things, but it kind of reminds me of 09, uh, 08, 09 with the Johnny Flynn team, where it was definitely more offense than defense. Um, there were nights where they just looked, absolutely unbeatable um, and just blew teams out of the water. And there were nights like the, I think it was the game at Providence that year where they just didn't have a clue what they were doing and got beat by 30. And I think we're see we're going to see every inch of that spectrum this year. Yeah. And you, and you know what the bright side of that is, is that after the 08-09 team was the 09-10 team. 
which was just a dominant force of destruction. And just fun as hell. And if it hadn't been for Georgetown again, fuck you guys. <laughs> like we probably would have won the NCAA championship that year. But whatever. Um, I, I think that's a good place to end. Unless you had any any qualms about that, Dan. I agree with all of your Georgetown sentiments. Fair enough. Um, so yeah. Everyone, this has been Troy Noons is an absolute podcast. I'm John. That was Dan. Uh, feel free to subscribe, rate, review us on Blog Talk, on iTunes. And uh, yeah, we'll see you in the comments. Go Orange. Dina Babers is a god. <laughs>